Last week, the first pastor of our church, Pastor D. Witten, um, talked to us about the importance of reading the Bible, um, and he focused in on using the Psalms as a tool to get into God's Word uh, on a daily basis. Um, over these next few weeks, we are going to focus in on a certain set of Psalms. So Psalm 120 through Psalm 134 are a group of songs, psalms, which literally means songs. So a group of songs called the Psalms of Ascent, okay? And they're called the Psalms of Ascent because it literally means a song of going up. It's a song of degrees moving upwards. And these psalms were sung by the pilgrims, by the, by the Jewish believers, in Jericho, the nation of Israel, as they ascended the mountain to worship in Jerusalem. And they took this pilgrimage three times a year. The first one was Passover. So the feast of the Passover, these pilgrims, they traveled up to the temple in Jerusalem um, to remember and to commemorate God's salvation. Um, the Passover celebration was um, a time where they remembered how God had saved them from slavery and bondage in Egypt and brought them out. And he, he passed over. He allowed the angel of death to literally pass over the houses of the Israelites while they lived in Egypt, and he brought them out. So they, this feast was to remember God's salvation. Fifty days later, they celebrated what in the Jewish world is called the Feast of Pentecost. And so as Christian believers, if you've been a Christian for any period of time, that word Pentecost means something different to you than it would to an Israelite at this point in time and even a Jewish believer today. So the Feast of Pentecost, Pentecost literally means 50 in Greek, okay? So it's based on a Greek word translated 50. And so Pentecost comes 50 days in the Jewish calendar after Passover. And during the Feast of Pentecost, the Israelites, the Jewish pilgrims, they traveled up the mountain to Jerusalem to celebrate God's covenant. And this was a celebration and a remembrance of God giving the Torah, his law, and making a covenant with his people. Finally, the third feast that they celebrate was the Feast of Tabernacles. And this is where they remembered God's blessings. So after God brought the Israelites out of bondage, out of slavery in Egypt, um, he, they wandered through the desert for 40 years. Okay, and so during this time, God provided for him, them, provided through manna, provided through quail, and provided everything that they needed during this time in the desert. And so they literally, during this feast, it's also called the Feast of Booths, because they built booths and tents and stay in them to remember the time that they lived as wanderers in tents in the wilderness. But what I want you to see in all three of these feasts is the focus is on God and what he had done for them. God's salvation, God's covenant, God's blessing. And each feast, it's a moving upward 
towards God. And I know, like I've said a couple times now, that the pilgrims, they ascended the mountain. I want you to see the significance of this journey. So I found a map. You can find anything on Google. <laughs> I found a map that shows what this looked like. And so if you look in the little dot in the valley, that's Jericho near the Dead Sea. And that is 825 feet below sea level. Okay, Jerusalem is at the top of the hill that you can see, and that is 2,540 feet above sea level. The road from Jericho to Jerusalem is a 3,400 elevation difference over 15 miles. Who, who, who's a runner? Who has run a half marathon? I know you have. Who has run a, ha- a half marathon or even um, a, a marathon? Can Now, I run them, but I run them in Florida where it's flat, <laughs> right? Can you imagine the distance and the elevation change and how difficult it would be to move up that road to Jerusalem? Not only do you have the environmental difficulties, I mean, you, you have wild animals, you have weather. I mean, this is, they're not doing this in cars with air conditioning, okay? They, they, and they're, they, they're not doing it in their Nikes either. They're doing it in their bare feet and in their sandals and, and, and in their rough, coarse robes. And this is a difficult climb. But these roads were also um, fraught with other dangers. There was bandits and robbers and the threat of losing their life. And so it was a difficult climb. And so these songs, one of the reasons why they sang them together was to remind themselves and to remind each other why they were taking this journey. To encourage one another, to encourage themselves to remember God's salvation and God's blessing and God's provision. And you know, our Christian walk can sometimes feel like an uphill climb. It can feel difficult. There are times where it feels like we are trying to get close to God, but there are pitfalls around every turn, and we feel like we take two steps forward and three steps back. And so these psalms can be a way, the psalms of ascent can be a way for us as individuals to study and to remind ourselves of God's goodness. But, but when we come together, let us never forget to look forward to this coming together as pilgrims on this Christian journey and encourage one another to remember God's goodness and God's graciousness and God's faithfulness and mercy. You know, pilgrim, when you hear that word pilgrim in America, what do you think of? Thanksgiving, right? A guy in a hat and a black jacket and, you know, little women in their little white caps celebrating, you know, the Thanksgiving harvest. That's what we think of when we hear pilgrim. But pilgrim literally means a person who spends their life going someplace. In this case, it's going to God. We are Christian pilgrims who spend our lives on a journey to move closer 
to God. It means leaving where we are to move to some place better. And so as we move into to looking at these Psalms of Ascent, we're going to begin with Psalm 120. And I admit that when I was sent this Psalm uh, and said, hey, can you, can you do a message on this? And I was like, oh, sure, Psalms 120. I've don't know what that is, but yeah, I'll, I'll speak on that. And then I read it and I thought, Ooh, what am I going to say about Psalm 120? It's not a Psalm you hear often. It's not um, a Psalm that's got a, a really obvious message, but as I have prayed and studied and sought the Lord, I've realized there is so much truth and so much meat in this psalm that we can apply to our everyday lives. So we're going to read through the whole psalm, and you're going to get to the end, and you're going to go, but then we're going to break it apart, okay? And I hope by the end that you will see, as I I have, how how much there is here that we can learn from. And so if, if you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 120, verse 1. It'll also be up on the screen. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me, Lord, rescue me from lying lips and a deceitful tongue. What will he give you, and what will he do to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with burning charcoal. What misery that I have stayed in Meshech, that I have lived among the tents of Gadar. I have dwelt too long with those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. The end, I'm gonna, no, I'm just joking. (laughs) And so the first thing that we see, if we back up to verse one, it says, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. How many people here have ever felt distress? (laughs) right? Um, We feel distress uh, nearly every day. Sometimes it's little things like a commute to Northern Virginia, right, in the worst traffic in the country. Um, My husband does that commute back and forth every day, and I would say that, yes, it brings him distress. Um, But even bigger than that, we can feel distress in our financial lives, um, distress in our relationships, Uh, Maybe there's distress in your marriage. You feel distressed because you're worried about uh, something that's happening in the life of your child. Maybe a medical diagnosis, maybe your own or that of a loved one, is causing you distress. And so like the psalmist, we can cry out to the Lord. We should cry out to the Lord in our distress and see what he says and he answered me before he even tells us what's causing his distress he says i cried out to the lord in my distress and he answered me we are guaranteed that we when we cry out to the lord in our distress he will answer us and he will meet us where we are and so we are to pray for deliverance. If we go on to the next, um, the next part of this passage, we, we find out what is causing this individual distress. Lord, rescue me from lying lips and a deceitful tongue. 
Um, slander and lies are what is distressing this individual. In my life, I have come to learn that people will always seek to destroy what they don't understand. And for, for many of us as Christians, we live among people who don't understand us. They don't understand why we do things that we do, why we believe what we believe, why we don't do some things. And so we can become the victims of slander and lies. Um, God's people have always been a, tar a target for attack because darkness cannot understand light. And as someone who seeks to follow hard after the Lord, who seeks to be righteous and to walk blamelessly on this earth, one of the worst things that can happen, one of the worst things that we can experience is that slander, the tarnishing of our reputation. And so we are to cry out to God to meet us when that happens. But as I thought and I prayed over this verse, I realized that there is another type of distress that our tongue can cause. And that is our own personal lies and slander and words that we say. Our tongue can cause us sometimes even greater distress than the words of someone else. Um, James says in chapter 3, verse 6, And the tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is placed among our members, meaning we have this world of unrighteousness placed inside our body. It stains the whole body, sets the course of life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Every kind of animal, bird, reptile, and fish is tamed and has been tamed by humankind, but no one can tame the tongue it is a restless evil full of deadly poison. I have definitely in my own life over and over and over again, and I'm sure you can say the same thing, felt the repercussions of my own tongue. Um, I like words. Uh, it's no surprise to you that I like words and I like to talk and I like to communicate. And sometimes those words come out faster than my brain can catch up with them. And I say things that I should not have said. And I, I want to be transparent with you this morning. And so, because um, I don't want you to think that I'm up here preaching something to you that I haven't experienced in my own life. And um, so I was thinking back at the many times that my tongue has gotten away with me or from me. And um, two, two instances really to this day still cause me great personal um, regret and grief. Um, one of them took place when my daughters, uh, my first two daughters, I have four, um, when my first two daughters were about four years old and three years old. And I was um, pregnant, I think, 
uh, it's all a blur. You know, you have a lot of babies in a row and it all kind of blurs together. Um, I think I was pregnant with number three or number three may have just been born and a baby. Um, and the sleeplessness may uh, explain why this took place the way it did. But that, that the, the three-year-old and the four-year-old um, had just eaten something and about a half an hour later, they, they started begging me for peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And I knew they weren't going to eat them. And so I was like, girls, you're not hungry. No, I'm not going to make the sandwiches. Please, mommy, please make us the sandwiches. And back and forth it went. And finally, I made them their sandwiches. And I set them down on the kitchen table in front of them. And as I walked back behind the counter, I heard, we're not hungry. Well... I would like to say that Mamo just went over and said, that's okay, sweethearts. I'll take them back and put them in the refrigerator. No, it's not what I did. I screamed and I yelled and I threw a temper tantrum for 10 minutes. I slammed the refrigerator. I slammed the cabinets. I yelled at those two precious little people, telling them how wasteful they were and daddy worked so hard for the money to buy that peanut butter and how could they and they promised me that they would eat them and go to your rooms because I'm so mad at you right now. And they, those, I saw their spirits just deflate. And I'll never forget it. They are 12 and 10. And it's probably, it sounds silly, but it was one of my darkest parenting moments. Sometimes it can be in other relationships. When I was 12 years old, I was at a church, church picnic. The church that I grew up in um, was a much older congregation. Most of the people in the church were in the grandparent stage of life. Um, My grandmother was church secretary there, and um, her best friend went to church there. And there was about four or five um, young girls. We were all around the same age, and we had grown up together in that church. And we were all there at this picnic. Well, my grandmother's best friend was a woman named Miss Elaine. She had been like a second grandmother to me. I had spent hours at her house and playing with her granddaughter, Carrie. We grew up in Sunday school together and was at this picnic. And I was in the bathrooms um, at the picnic ground with, I walked in with another friend named Della. And, you know, at this time, we really didn't like Carrie. We thought Carrie was a little weird, and Carrie was wild, and Carrie did things that good Christian Sunday school 12-year-olds shouldn't be doing. And so Della and I, you know, we went to the stalls, and we were doing what you do in bathroom stalls, uh, and we were talking back and forth to one another about Carrie. What we didn't realize was that Carrie's grandmother, Miss Elaine, was in the next stall and heard every word and came out sobbing to my grandmother and told my grandmother what I had said. And while I tried to repair that relationship and I asked for forgiveness and Miss Elaine said that she forgave me, that relationship was damaged and strained for the rest of her life the rest of the time that she lived on this earth. And I regret that, and I will regret it until the day that I die. 
because I know the pain that my immature tongue, trying to sound cool, trying to fit in the pain that it it caused. And so while, yes, we need to cry out to God to save us from the tongues of others, I think we need to cry out to God even more to save us from our own tongue and the damage that it can cause. But furthermore, we live in a society of lies. We, we live in a society where all around us tells us things that aren't true. And, you know, we, we like to think that things are just worse and worse and worse, but this is no different than the t- biblical times when the writers wrote, you know, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome saying, talking about the Gentiles, talking, talking about the people the pagans living around them. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served a cre- created things rather than the creator. And I think we could say the same for our society today. We can look around and we can see where people have exchanged the truth of God, the obvious truth of God, and embraced a lie and where increasingly more and more we worship the created things instead of the creator. But even before Paul in the New Testament wrote those words, the the prophet Isaiah cried out to the the people of Israel in Isaiah 520 saying, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And again, we can look all around us and see where there are people in our society outside of the church and sometimes even in the church that call bad good and good bad. Uh, I love to read articles, news articles, and find, keep up with what's going on in the world. And, um, but what, I'm, what I really end up getting drawn into most of the time is the comments section on news article. Who here reads the comments, right? You read the comments. If you read the comments, you know that the comments can be a dark, bitter, ugly place, okay? And so after Billy Graham died, I read an article on a secular news website uh, about Billy Graham and his life and his death, and then I read the comments section, and I couldn't believe what I was reading. You know, Billy Graham, this great evangelical force who had led crusades that led so many people to Christ and had been the, the biblical, the Christian advisor to heads of state, the Queen of England, the president after president, this man who just preached Jesus was being called a murderer. He was being, I can't, I'm so happy that that horrible man is finally dead. Woe to a society that calls bad good and good bad. The world we live in will tell you that there is no God. We elevate the value of the created thing. They'll tell you that a baby in a womb is nothing more than a blob. It has no feelings. It has no life. 
The lies will tell you that we came from sludge and that we were not divinely and lovingly created by the God of the universe. We live in a society of relativism where you're told to follow your own truth. What is right for you? Oh, that's good for you, but it's not right for me. This is what's right for me, and there's no absolute truth. We're told you can pick your own gender. We're told that comfort, happiness, and pleasure should be our highest pursuits. We're fed lies. And even as Christians, when we are bombarded and influenced day after day, it can be so easy to fall into the trap of believing these lies. And so we need to cry out to God to cause our hearts and our minds to turn to his truth and cry out in our distress. Moving on in the passage, we, we see that this individual, this psalmist, um, he's asking a question, okay? He's saying, what will he give you and what will he do to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with burning charcoal. So what I want you to see here is when he says, what will he give to you and what will he do to you? He is God, and he's personifying, he, he's, he's giving this deceitful tongue a personality. He's, he's making it an individual. And he's saying, what will God give to you in judgment for your lies? And the answer is a warrior's sharp arrows with burning charcoal. These arrows in the burning charcoal, they're emblems of God's judgment. So another translation says a warrior's sharp arrows with burning broom tree. And so I looked up what a broom tree was and I found out that a broom tree um, is a fuel that they would burn that burned very, very hot and it burned for a very long time. And so the psalmist is saying, this is bad. The judgment is bad. It is painful and it is hot <laughs> and it hurts. So often in the, the evangelical Christian world today, we like to focus in on, on God's love and God's mercy and the hope and the peace that he brings but we like to not talk about God's judgment and God's wrath. Yet Jesus warned of judgment over and over again during his earthly ministry. In Matthew 12, 36, he said, Every idle word men speak, they will give account of in the day of judgment. Matthew 13, 41 through 2 he says, the son of man will send out his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And so Jesus himself talks of judgment and um, talking about Billy Graham. I was reading a story that Billy Graham told. Um, he said it was a true story, so I'm going to say it's a true story as well. And the story was about this 
um, man who had been accused of murdering um, someone else. And this in, there was a lawyer who took on his case. And he worked very, very hard to defend his client. And he brought witnesses and family members, and he um, had them tell stories about this man and how good he was and the life he had lived, and he caused doubt in the mind of the jurors. And the lawyer was able to get this man, who he knew was guilty, acquitted of the charges. And after the trial, he went to him and he said, um, go and live a better life. Take this opportunity that you have been given to make a change. 20 years goes by. And this lawyer is now a judge sitting on the bench. And who walks into the courtroom but that client from 20 years before Again, accused of murder. And at this time, the judge has no choice but to find him guilty and to pass judgment. And what Billy Graham says is that Jesus, right now, is our lawyer. He is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, pleading our case day in, day out, every moment, every hour, pleading for you and I, for God to forgive our sins. But someday Jesus will also sit in judgment upon us. And for those that do not know him, who are not covered by the forgiveness of sins that comes through accepting the gift of salvation, the free gift of grace that he provided through his death on the cross, those people he will judge. And that knowledge, knowing that, should cause us to do two things. First, it should cause us to make sure that we are right with God. It should cause us to make sure that we have, in our own personal lives, made the commitment to call Jesus Lord and accept that free gift of grace and forgiveness of sins. The second thing that it should do, it should cause us to want to reach out to those who don't know him with the gospel. It should cause us to pray for our enemies. If we read in Romans, we read the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12, 19, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. It is written... It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. And so while the psalmist talks about the the justice and the judgment and God's wrath, we're told we're not to be the ones to bring about God's wrath. We are not to seek revenge. He quotes from Leviticus, actually two Old Testament passages, Leviticus 19.18 says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against any of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. And in this case, your neighbor is anybody. It's not just the person that lives next door to you. Deuteronomy 32, 35 says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. In due time, their foot will slip for their day of disaster is near and their doom is coming quickly. Remembering God's justice means that we need to be mindful 
of the judgment of God in our own lives, but it should also serve as a catalyst for us to share the gospel with a lost and dying world and to get things right with God in our own lives, not through our own goodness, but through the grace of Jesus Christ. Moving on in this passage, it says, What misery that I have stayed in Meshech, that I have lived among the tents of Kedar. I have dwelt too long with those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. You know, most of the time, a psalm ends on a really happy, up, positive note. <laughs> this one doesn't. Right? And, and, and we read it and we're like the Meshech and Kedar. And, and so I, I did some research and found out that Meshech um, was a people that lived on the southeastern edge of the Black Sea. And they were known as a barbaric people, barbaric, savage people. While Kedar was people was a people that lived in tents and they were travelers and they moved about through the Arabian desert. So the edge of the Black Sea and the Arabian desert are two very different places. And so this, this psalmist, this individual, he's not saying that he's actually lived in Meshech or that he's actually lived in Qatar, Qadar. He's at, what he's saying is, too long have I lived among a barbaric evil people. Too, too long have I, I sojourned. So he, so he uses, in another translation, it uses the word sojourn, which means to travel through. He's a resident alien. He, 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 he didn't grow up there. He wasn't born there. This wasn't his home. He sojourned through these places, and that's what we are. And sometimes we can cry out and we can say, too long have I lived among these people. And that feeling, it should cause us to yearn for heaven. It should cause us to yearn for God's kingdom right here on earth. It should cause us to seek community with other believers. And it's probably no surprise to you that as the group's director, I weave in seeking community into every message. We need each other. It should cause us to seek to build relationships, to encourage one another, to support one another. Because too long we have lived alone in this dark, lost, and dying world. And like the psalmist, we can look around and we can see that our world is at war. On nearly every continent, there are wars going on. And it should cause us to again yearn for God's kingdom. But in our own personal lives, there are times where, where we can look at our souls and we can, we can look inside in our hearts and our own hearts are in that dark place. Sometimes it can be so frustrating and we can say, too long have I lived with my own dark, barbaric, savage, evil heart. And again, it should cause us to want to move 
closer to God. The psalmist, he was dissatisfied with his current state of affairs. And this must be the place that we come to in order to move forward, not just in our own Christian walk, but in any area of our lives. You know, we we're never, you know, someone is never going to decide to diet and get healthy and exercise and eat right uh, until they come to a place where where they're currently living, where they're currently at, is the, the pain of living there and staying there is more uncomfortable than the difficulty they'll face moving forward. And it's that way with any habit, any area of our lives. We will never leave it as long as we're comfortable. And so sometimes God even, he doesn't cause it, but God will allow that discomfort to come into our lives in order to move us forward. I know I have experienced this in my own life, and there are times where, uh, where things are going along really, really good, and, and it's a season of peace and happiness and things are going well. And I start to look for, okay, God, what are you going to bring next? What are you going to bring next to, to move me forward? Because the truth is when I'm living in that season of peace, my, my desire for God's kingdom grows less and less and less because I become comfortable where I'm at. Uh, my husband reminded me of a Winnie the Pooh quote last night when we were talking about this. Winnie the Pooh says, I always get where I'm going by leaving where I've been. And so we need to leave where we're at to move forward to ascend that mountain towards the Lord. Dissatisfaction with where we are will lead us to move towards God. And this is true repentance. I'm reminded of the story of the prodigal son. Now, a lot of you, if you've been in church for a while, you've heard this story a lot, and you think you know everything about the story, and you probably do. But what I want to focus on is one particular area of this story. If you are not familiar with this story, um, the prodigal son is about a man who goes to his father and he says, I want my inheritance. I don't want to wait until you're dead. I want my money now. And so the father obliges his request and he gives him the inheritance. And this young man, he goes out and he lives a life fast and free. And he squanders his money and he finds himself living literally among the pigs. Now, I have two potbelly pigs living in my backyard. They're my pets. They're my little girls, Duchess and Tierra. And so for me to live among the pigs wouldn't be a bad thing because I love my little pigs. But to a person in this time, a Jew, this was the lowest of the low to live among the swine, to take care of what was called dirty and unclean by God was the lowest place that a Jew could be. And I want you to see what happens here because this young man wakes up one morning and he says to himself, 
Even the servants in my father's house have it better than I do. I will go back and I will ask him to allow me to come and work as a servant. And so the pain of where he's at has become greater than the discomfort that he'll experience in moving back towards his father. But what I don't want us to miss is what the father does in response, because it's a picture of what God does to us. We, the, the, the man moves back towards his father, and instead of his father saying, you know what, you're right, you deserve nothing more than to be a servant in my house. I can't believe what you did. No, instead, the father throws a party, a huge banquet. He kills the fatted calf, and he celebrates the return of his son. And that's what God does for us. It can be difficult to take that first step. We're afraid. We feel we don't deserve it. But our Father in heaven, in his great mercy and love, welcomes us with open arms. He meets us in our uncleanness. He meets us in this place of discomfort. Uh, Martin Luther, uh, a great theologian of the Reformation, he says, Jesus never gave himself for our righteousness, but he did give himself for our sins. The first link between myself and Christ is not my goodness, but my badness. Not my merit, but my misery. Not my standing, but my falling. Not my riches, but my need. He comes to visit his people, not to admire their beauties, but to remove their deformities. Not to reward their virtues, but to forgive their sins. Our first contact with Jesus did not come in our goodness. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. It came when we were still dirty and clean and unclean in our sins. Who here likes Marvel movies? I know those two right there. I know you do. Yeah. So my, I, I see another one over here. So uh, my family, we might be uh, Marvel geeks, and we like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, and one of our favorite characters in the Marvel Cinematic Universe is uh, Star-Lord from Guardians of the Galaxy, um, played by actor Chris Pratt. Uh, some of you, if you're not a Marvel fan, you may have watched uh, Chris Pratt on Parks and Recreation, or maybe you like dinosaurs because you've seen Chris Pratt in the Jurassic World movies. And so um, Chris, Chris Pratt uh, was given an award um, at the MTV Music Awards. Um, it's, he was given the MTV Generation Award. And during his acceptance speech, he gave what he called Chris Pratt's nine rules to live by. Now, I'm not going to share all nine rules because number five may have something to do with how to poop at a party. So 
might not be appropriate for a Sunday morning church service. But go home and Google it because it's really funny. Um, and the other rules, there are some really, really good ones as well. But what I want to share with you is rule number nine. Nobody is perfect. People will tell you that you are perfect just the way that you are. You are not. You are imperfect. You always will be. But there is a powerful force that designed you that way. And if you are willing to accept that, you will have grace. And grace is a gift. Like the freedom that we enjoy in this country, that grace was paid for by somebody else's blood. Do not forget that. Do not take that for granted. That powerful force that Chris mentions, we know is God. And that, that somebody, that somebody that shed his blood, we know is Jesus. And Chris does too, but it was the MTV Music Awards. <laughs> and so he stopped short. What I, what I loved about watching that was the cheer that went up from the young people in the audience when they heard him say it. And it gave me hope for our country. But I also look around and I see darkness. I see darkness all around us and I see darkness in my own life. And that darkness makes me yearn for heaven and yearn for God's kingdom. If you are someone here today who has never made that move towards Jesus, you've never made the move to ascend the mountain towards God in celebration of his salvation and, and his, his covenant and his blessings. Today is the day that you can do that. Maybe you've sat in the pews of a church again and again, and you've heard this message over and over and over, but something's pricked your heart today and it's different and it's real to you. And you're saying, yes, I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life don't leave here today without responding to that call. Maybe you're like the pilgrim, the psalmist who says, too long have I lived where I'm at. You've accepted Christ, and maybe at one point in your, in your, your Christian walk, you were on fire for him, and you couldn't get enough, but you got comfortable you got distracted. You bought the lies of society. And you're in a place where you're just, you just don't know him anymore. You're not close. Don't leave here today without renewing that commitment. Without saying, I want to leave where I'm at and I want to move forward. I want to move forward towards God. Will you bow your heads in prayer with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Um, we thank you that there is truth to be found throughout the gift of your holy scriptures. And God, I just pray that your words, not my words, but that your words moved hearts this morning. And I pray that your words 
will leave people changed. God, I pray for those individuals in the building right now who have never made a commitment to you, Lord. I pray that they will be moved to move towards you, to to leave behind your judgment and, and accept your forgiveness. If that is a decision that you want to make today, I just, uh, I, I pray that you will pray along with me now. There's nothing magic about the words that I am about to say. There's no special formula, and I'm probably going to mess it up some. But God, I just pray that you fill in the empty places. Um, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. And I ask you to come in and rule over this sinful life of mine. I ask for your forgiveness. I I want to call you, Lord. I want to move towards you. I want to leave behind the life I've been living living to, to move into the life that you have promised. Thank you for the free gift of grace that was provided through the sacrifice that you gave upon the cross. Thank you for forgiving me of my sins and wash me and cleanse me and make me new and guide me as I move closer towards you, Jesus. And if you're someone in this room that wants to make that recommitment, you're ready to leave where you are. And and honestly, shouldn't we all? None of us have arrived. None of us have come to a place where we can say we have ascended to the top of the mountain. And so I pray that all of us, church staff, volunteers, leadership, we all become dissatisfied with where we are to move to where God wants us to be. And so, Lord, I just pray that you will give us that holy dissatisfaction. Lord, make us uncomfortable. Make us yearn for your kingdom and desire you more and more every day. God, we love you. We worship you. And we thank you for the privilege of coming together to meet with one another. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. As the worship team plays, you can be free to come up here to the altar, talk with God. Um, I believe we have people from the prayer team will be stationed at either side and, and they can pray along with you. But, but don't leave here today without making a move towards God that he's calling you to make.